Please be seated. As we said, and you can see from the back of your bulletin, we've outlined uh, for you the concept of seeking Jesus, and it comes right from verse 24. Today, there's a lot of talk. There are a lot of books, if you're not aware of it. There is a lot of written material. There is much interest in the concept of seeking Jesus. Today, there's a lot of talk. If you were to take a computer, speaking of a computer, and go on a computer and look into seeking uh, or seeker-friendly, you would find a lot of information. We are living in this century, the 21st century, in a time in which there's a lot of talk about seeker-friendly, seeker-friendly churches, seeker-friendly Christians. And I think it's very appropriate, since we're in this text in John chapter 6, to ask ourselves a couple of questions since it's in relevance to where we are today, to what is going on. What is this concept of seeker? How does it line up with scripture, which should always be what we want to know? And how does it line up with our text? For example, in verse 24, they were seeking Jesus. Well, I want to, as all of you who come here on a regular basis know, I want to exegete and expound upon the text because that's what we're here to learn. We're here to learn what the Word of God says. But I also want to, as a point of interest today, because of all that goes on with the seeker-friendly concept, is to address it in a very simple, as simple as I can, and straightforward, right-to-the-point method so that you and I can understand what is going on around and what the Word of God is revealing to us even in this passage, that can be a help to us. So let me start with real basics. The word seek, they are found in verse 24, again repeated in verse 26, and will continue to be seen throughout the gospel according to John. In the English, it means to search for. It means to look after, to look for, to go after. We understand that. Guess what? In the Greek... It means the same thing. So there's no question there. It means to go after. It means to search for. And apparently, according to what we just read in verse 24, there were a lot of people, a multitude, that were searching for. They were seeking after. They were going to look for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's pretty simple. That's pretty straightforward. How about when it's related to God... How about when it's related to Jesus Christ? We hear a lot about the fact that a lot of people are out there. I hear it even in this church sometimes from people. There are a lot of people just seeking Jesus. Well, let me put it in a perspective for you from Scripture with just a couple of verses to set the tone. Listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 11. Here's what it says. There is no one who understands. There is, listen... No one who seeks after God. That's pretty straightforward. There's no one that seeks after God. You say, well, that's Paul's opinion. He was pretty biased. Really? Listen to Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the sons of men. Guess what? That includes all of us. To see if there is, listen, any who understands and seeks after God. Verse 3. 
they have all turned away. There's none. There's none. You say, well, it says it's seeking here. Really? You got your Bible open to John chapter 6. Look at verse 37, which is a future study as we continue to expound in chapter 6. But look at it. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. That's important to see right away this morning because if you are coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, I guarantee you he will not cast you out on the basis of his word. But he says here very clearly, you notice, all the Father gives me shall come to me. The Father must give that. You say, well, I'm not so sure that's really what it means. Really? Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's pretty clear in English. No one can come to me unless the Father basically is working on drawing that person. And then he says, I will raise him up on the last day. Now, those are just a few sampling verses right at the outset to help us see and I think draw a conclusion when it comes to God, there is really nobody, no one, boy, girl, man, woman, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter whether you live in Thailand, China, United States of America, South America, doesn't matter where it is. There is no one that is seeking after God or Jesus, listen, on their own. There may be people seeking, looking to Jesus and looking, but I want you to know, be encouraged right away. You say, well, it doesn't sound too encouraging. Hold on. If you are seeking after Jesus, if you are looking to God, it's because God has already begun a work. It's because God is already drawing you. Whether you've recognized it or not, God is already working in your life. But left to ourselves, we will not seek God. That ought to be pretty obvious to us by our newspapers, by our television sets. People are seeking after what they want. They are seeking after what they think this world is going to satisfy them with. But they're not really seeking God, especially on his terms. So there's none on their own or by their own desire who would seek. Now what about this concept of seeker-friendly churches before we get to this text and so forth, and seeker-friendly Christians? Let's, in a simple way, address that. And again, this is a summarization but I believe it's as accurate as I could make it in the basis of a lot of research. And where did this develop out of? What, what, what brought about this concept of seeker-friendly? And again, I said you can go to Christian bookstores and it's filled with books and so forth on this and information. Number one, we need to understand that the primary, and this may be new to some of you, but that the primary cause or the primary development for the seeker-friendly movement was number one, low church attendance. People were not attending churches anymore. And that's true, by the way, today. People were not coming out to church. People were not going. And so out of that, there was a need to try to find out why they weren't going and to try to get them into church. That was number one. Number two was a concept called legalism. What is that? Churches who basically were looking only at the outward performance. It didn't matter what your lifestyle was like. What mattered is that you outwardly looked like a Christian, spoke like a Christian, 
did quote-unquote Christian things, and churches developed their own rules, and of course they would always say, based on Christian uh, scriptural principles, who would be foolish not to say that? But they would come up with rules that really were not consistent with what the Word of God really taught. They would call things sin that were not sin. And clearly the scripture would teach the opposite. But nevertheless, that movement has been very strong in professing Christendom. And so the reality, so that we understand it, before we talked about this seeker-friendly, it was primarily out of low church attendance, but it secondly developed out of the concept of legalism. And that was a reaction to it. And the, the idea was to attract the unchurched, to attract those who do, go, don't go to any church, to attract the non-religious. For what purposes? To come and to worship, quote-unquote, God. How did they do that? By conforming to the non-churchgoers. Now, some of you will argue with that. You can do that till you're blue in the face. It doesn't matter. All you can do is research, and you'll find out that's exactly what it was. The idea was they wanted to reach the unchurched, reach the non-religious, by conforming to them. How? In dress, in style, in the meeting or worship atmosphere. And how would they do that? By their own writings. I'll tell you how they were going to do it and how they did do it. By toning down, this is their words and I quote it, by toning down any religious overtones, such as what? Style, structure, musical instruments. For example, many churches that are doing this, the first instrument that goes is that one. They walk in and get rid of the organ. The organ's for funerals. Well, maybe for funerals, I don't know. But it has a nice sound to it. Any instrument, doesn't matter, see? But the, the concept was to adopt that and also the preaching, to change the preaching. What was the purpose? Now listen, this is their own wording. The purpose was to make the unchurched, to make the unsaved, to make the non-religious, to make the non-Christian, here it is, comfortable. That's their own words. The whole concept was to have this movement to make them feel comfortable. So what's the approach? Their approach is to be non-offensive in any way possible. To be exciting, not boring. To be involved in dialogue, not preaching. And if you folks don't think that this is the truth or reality, you are fooling yourself. Because if you read their writings, that's what they will say. That's it. It's to basically be non-offensive in any way possible, to make them comfortable, to be exciting. In fact, the advertisements usually is come to our church, we're not boring, we are exciting. Come see our band. That's usually the type of concept that's behind it. Now, that may be offensive to some in this room. I have no apologies for that. That's the reality. Usually... Churches who do that experience huge growth. Huge. It's usually associated with, just to be right to the point, 
Bill Hybels, and Rick Warren. Many, many aspects go in different directions, but that's where it basically really grew out of. And it was the concept of purpose-driven both life and church. Now, having just presented some facts, their motives, in my opinion, were good. That may sound strange to you, to reach the unchurched, to reach those who don't know Christ. And I think also from observation, we can learn a lot of things from them. We're afraid to do that. I don't think we should be. We can learn a lot of things because we can improve some things. Certainly, unsaved should feel welcomed when they come into the environment. They shouldn't see a click. They should see genuineness in Christianity, not phoniness. You don't need that. There's too many phonies around to begin with. There's a lot of things that we can learn, and we should. But what should we do? What about this concept of making the unchurched comfortable? And I'm saying that to set, you, to set the stage for what you're going to see in this text. Listen to what Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This is not Pastor Dan now. This is not what they say. Hey, let's listen to scriptures for a minute. Just a couple of verses. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove or test what the will of God is. You don't conform to this world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. It was in your responsive reading. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, not comfortable. To the Gentiles, foolishness. They think it's stupid. Chapter 1, verse 21. God was well pleased through the foolishness. Who was well pleased? God. Well pleased, not through drama, not through dialogue, but through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And I would say, and to be fair, that most of them would say that that's exactly what they do. But listen to the next verse. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave some pastors and teachers... And I challenge my own heart here and anyone in any church right now that is standing in a pulpit. Why did God give people that position? He couldn't be any clearer. Not to reach the unchurched. Here's what he says. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The concept is that the person in the pulpit is there to equip the congregation. How do you reach the lost then? By you reaching the lost. And when the message is preached, stay with me in about another 10 minutes, you're going to hear it. And to use the word of God to change lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 says, But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves, and don't stop there, in all your behavior. In all your behavior. It's very important that we understand that God's work is to be done God's way, not any of our ways, not fellowship's way, not anyone else's way, but God's way. 
and it's to be done by being different, not conforming. And I'll say more about Israel in a little bit, but it's by being different. And let's see what this text does. Let's see if that's true in this text. Let's see what happens when people, quote, unquote, were seeking Jesus, whether or not he just wanted to make them comfortable or whether he confronted the issue. Let's look at our text. Let's look at the setting, verses 22 to 24. First of all, you notice it says the next day, verse 22. What do you mean the next day? Well, Jesus had just fed 5,000. Many people had heard about that. You know about that, even if you weren't here for the preaching. He had fed about 5,000 plus. And by the way, he sets that tone for the future of this text because he's going to talk about him being the bread of life and deal with that further. But he had just done that miracle. He had also, last week, walked on water. He had walked on water, and now he left and went to Capernaum, which is in northern Galilee, and I showed you that in an overhead. And we get what we have here in this context from verses 22 to 24 is, first of all, his disciples. They had gone by boat to Capernaum last week, and now it's the next day, and you've got the people here. The people in verses 22, 23, and 24 called the multitude. What we find is they are still on the northeast shore of Galilee. They're somewhere near Bethsaida, if you remember from last week's message. And they had observed some things interesting. They observed that there was only one boat, and the disciples had departed on the boat, but Jesus did not go with them. They knew that. Another miracle, by the way. They knew that, and Jesus left. They understood that, according to verse 22. But somehow, he was now with them. And then what happened was boats, verse 23, come from Tiberias. For those of you who have been to Israel, we got Bethsaida, or what we know to help us, the Golan Heights, is on the northwest side, and uh, or east side, I should say. And then the other, opposite side is Tiberias, right across from that small lake. And all of a sudden, all these boats come across from verse 23, and he doesn't tell us why. I will interject an opinion here, and I clearly say it's an opinion. It was probably an opportunity to make some money. You say, come on, Pastor Dan. No. What would happen today if there were loud, uh, large crowds around and somebody sold water on a hot day? You think they'd go after that crowd? I think so. I think they'd look for an opportunity and these people, what we do know from the text, saw that there's a multitude on the opposite side and there's no boats. And what we do find is the people end up using the boats to get to Capernaum. So maybe they were just there out of curiosity. It's possible. I don't know that. But certainly they were used for that. After the Lord had had the miracles in verse 24, they now saw that Jesus is gone, so they take action. And what happens? According to verse 24, it's clear. They go to Capernaum, which is now the headquarters for Jesus. And again, some of you have been there. The Lord, and that's where they say Peter's home is and is still today, a big area that's labeled Peter's house and where they met down in the, the basement and so forth. So you could still see that today. But that was kind of a headquarters and uh, for Jesus at this time on the northern shore, uh, south of Lebanon to help you with today. All right, that would be the area. And... That's where Jesus was, and they come seeking him. This is a golden opportunity, verse 24. They are going after him. Here's an opportunity for Jesus and his disciples to be excited. 
Here's an opportunity because he's got multitudes. He's just fed 5,000. To see them coming and to say, can't wait. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. But what happened? Well, to put it very bluntly, as in your outline, there's wrong ways to seek Jesus and there's right ways. And what we find out is they were seeking him for the wrong reasons. Verses 25 and 26, take a look. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, how did you get here? When did you get here? Sorry, when did you get here? Jesus doesn't answer that question. Notice how user-friendly he is with them. Notice how seeker-friendly and how adaptable he is to these folks. Verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you don't seek me because you saw signs. You do it, why? Because you ate the loaves and were full. The only reason you're coming after me is because your bellies were full and no other reason. Boy, was he friendly, right? Nobody's saying anything here. See? I want you to notice something. Keep your finger here. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. This is vital to the message. Romans chapter 10. People think you seek Jesus for different reasons. Look at verses 1 through 4. Brethren, this is the Apostle Paul, by the way. Says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is what? Their salvation. Why? Verse 2. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but notice this next part. It is not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness, and that is missed. And what? Notice the word. Seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I will be commenting that a moment, in a moment. But what I'm trying to make you see is the Jews seek after Jesus. They don't do it the right way. You know, in spite of Israel's problems, I told you I'd get back to it. You might not like what Israel did in the Old Testament, but you know what? They were still God's people. You might not like the sacrificial system, but guess who submitted himself to the sacrificial system? Jesus Christ. Guess who submitted himself to the law? The Lord Jesus Christ. In spite of the ritual, how they were doing things outwardly and not inwardly, he exposed it. But where did he go to teach? In the temple. Why? Because God designated it so. And what I'm trying to teach you, yes, he corrected what was wrong, but he didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Very simply put, in spite of how local churches, many, many, many local churches, are wrong with many, many things, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because God has designed the local church to be the place that he works through. And God has designed believers to be the ones that are gifted to be used of God. That's why you have missionaries. That's why you establish local churches. Now, it might look differently. It doesn't have to be in a fancy building or whatever. Not at all. We're not talking about that. 
But people want to throw it all away. Neither do you throw away the methodology of preaching the word. One of the biggest comments that I read over and over again is that preaching is boring. We need to make it exciting. I'm going to tell you something. This is, might shock you, but here it is. I am not going to teach you anything new. My job is to give you what this says. That's it. So if you're looking for something fancy from Pastor Dan, you lose. The idea is my responsibility is to get the truth into you because the world is not going to give you the truth. And we need to deliver this book, and it's going to happen through preaching. You can try to change people's lives, as you're going to see in just a moment, socially and every other way, and change the environment to make them feel good, and all you'll end up with is a feeling good non-believer. You need to get to the root of the heart, and no human being or any method can do it. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Because the truth needs to go forth, and they need to hear something different from what the world is offering. And they need to see that it's different. The concept of conforming to the world has never been promoted by the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament or old. I'm not saying odd. I'm not saying that he didn't dress like they dressed and so forth. But there were times. You, you need to have the right balance. That's the point. He exposed the fact in this verse, verse 26. You look at it. You don't seek me because of this. They were self-seeking attachers to Jesus. Let me give another statement that might shock some of you. I believe one of the worst things a church can do is make an unbeliever comfortable. If, they can, if, if we have unbelievers come in here and they are comfortable, I'm not saying not welcome, I'm not saying not friendly, but if they can go out of here comfortable and be thinking that they're just like everybody else, you are not preaching the word of God. Because the word of God is convicting even to a believer. They were looking for more miracles. They were looking for more food. And there are people that are looking for Jesus just to satisfy whatever they want to do and to basically put a stamp of approval on it. Whatever they could get. Whether you realize it or not, it was a materialistic motivation. There was no spiritual perception of who Jesus Christ was. None. That's not me. Look at the text. They did not perceive who he was. Listen, let me put it to you this way for the miracle. They did not seek him, according to verse 26, while they were looking for signs. They did not seek him because his miracles authenticated who he was. They sought him because his miracles satisfied them physically. Big difference. If they were coming after him because they said only a man of God, Nicodemus, could do the things you did. Now they're seeking for the right reasons. And there are those who you can talk to about Jesus Christ today that will gladly come as long as they get what they're looking for. They came to Jesus because they wanted Jesus to be who they wanted him to be, not because of who he really is. They wanted him to fit in to their program. And Jesus confronts their shallowness. 
He confronts, you ready for this? Their sin. And he says, you are not doing it with the right motivation. So is there a right way to seek Jesus? Yes, verses 27 to 29. Here it is. Don't work for the work that, which perishes. We understand that. We understand food that perishes, and we eat it every day. Don't let that be your whole life. Doesn't the scripture say, for example, I think it's Matthew 4, I think it's 4, 4, uh, that with the word of God, okay, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God? Yes. What else do we see here? We see it says, don't work for work that perishes, but for the food. Here's the important thing for every one of us to hear this morning. But for food which endures to eternal life. And by the way, just in case people get the wrong idea, I'm in favor of music. We have a choir. They happen to be taking a break right now in the summertime. We have an orchestra. There isn't any instrument that you can't use for the glory of God if it's done right. None. And music's a wonderful thing. So don't think I'm going off on a tangent that way. But God says, seek that which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, watch this, shall give you. I'm going to repeat that because you can't earn it. You can't work for it. He says, basically, you should be seeking that which is going to endure beyond this life. I mentioned Bob Pratty because his congregation has been praying for him. Soon he'll be in the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he sought after that which was eternal. And he trusted in Jesus Christ. And Pastor Stringer had a right one, and he and I were having a little conversation. Right now, his eyes are already closed. The next time he opens them up, guess what he's going to see? The Lord Jesus Christ. Next time. Why? That which endures. Who what? The Son of God will give. And God has set a seal on him. What is that? God has identified. God has, this isn't talking about the idea of sealing in a box. It's talking about seal with identification. And the thing that usually helps me, we don't do it much anymore, but if you're as old as I am, you remember cowboy movies and so forth, and there used to be the branding iron, and they bring the cows, boom, our ranch. Now, I don't know what Petra would do with that today, but anyway, they put the seal on the animal. You know what I'm talking about. And I mean that in the right sense. Well, that was a seal. It was an identification. They, bro- they belong to our ranch. The identification for God is this son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one. And you notice what they said, the na- same reaction that we get. And by the way, he's, he's telling them to stop doing it. It's an imperative. It's a present imperative in verse 27. Stop seeking just the material. Where are you today? Are you seeking just that which is material, just that which is for this life? Is there anything wrong with trying to be physically fit? No, I jog. I try to watch what I eat, everything. I try to do things seriously, and I know you do, and this, that's good. I'm not, I'm not criticizing that at all. But our life is not to just be in this material. We ought to have a pursuit after spiritual, eternal values, and God will give it. And you notice the contrast now between works and grace in verses 28 and 29. They said, therefore, what shall we do? Watch this, that we might work the works of God. To put it very simple, their motivation was, what can I do? How can I be good enough? What can I do? That's the concept of religion. All the religions of the world are basically based on, I said religion, are based on the concept of you doing something. And as a human being, we, we often think that way. I've got to do something to please God. What can I do? 
How can I do the works of God? And we try to be religious. We try to be good enough. And, and that's their idea. What can we do to do the works? It's the same question that the teacher asked in Matthew. You listen. Stay right here. I'll read Matthew 19 to you rather than try to quote it. Matthew 19, verse 16 says this. Listen. Let me get there. Verse 16 says this. A teacher came to him and he says, What good things shall I do that I can obtain eternal life? In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, listen. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, this was a lawyer. And here's what the lawyer said in verse 25. A certain lawyer came, he stood up, and he put to him this test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There are maybe several in this audience, maybe many in this audience, that are thinking, what can I do? There's got to be something I can do to win favor with God. Guess what? It's not of works. Look at verse 29. This is the work, singular, not plural. They said, what might we do to do the works, plural, of God? This is the work, singular, of God. Here it is. What is it? Faith. That you believe in him whom he had sent. Salvation is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, basically. In Romans chapter 4, verse 5, it says, to the one who does not work, he gets eternal life. We can't work for it. Why? Because we're all sinners. Every single man, woman, boy, and girl that come into this world are sinners. You've heard me say this before. I have five children. I have six grandchildren. I just sent them back to Maine. This, I have seven, sorry. One I haven't seen. He's in California. But we have uh, six grandchildren. I have never, ever had to teach my grandchildren or children how to misbehave. Never. They do it naturally. I did it to my own folks. They said, do something? No. Or I didn't do it, or I'd act like I was going to do it and did it behind the back. We end up sinning right away. And we have come short of the glory of God. If you today said, what can I do to do the works of God? And you're thinking in terms of how good can I be? You can't be good enough because there's none righteous. No, not one. And you can't take care of the sins that you've had in the past. But Jesus Christ not only can, he has. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes, whosoever believes, it's faith in him shall not perish. But listen, have eternal life. Jesus Christ came into this world to give life, to show you that there's more to this life. In fact, he came that you might have life to its fullest. And until you come to trust in Christ, you won't understand the full value of what life is all about. And you'll have a happy life in that sense in him. It's not of works. He made it very clearly. We could say it's the work of God. And by the way, in what relationship is that you believe? Well, in this case, if you really understand it, and I want to be careful how I put it, but the work is a true work in this sense. It's an activity of man in the inward act of responding to objective truth. It's in 
inward act of responding to objective truth, and we already know, we're going to see that in verse 44 when we get there, that God is already the one that's doing the drawing. God does it all. He does all the work. But within us, somehow, miraculously, there's the response to hearing the truth. But we have to recognize these people didn't do it. They only recognized that, look, he fed us bread. I want more. They didn't want anything spiritual. And then when he explained to them that you ought to be searching for that which to en endures to eternity, we're all going to die. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And we know we're going to die. Is that all you're living for, is this life? Well, guess what? When you come and you die, if that's all you've lived for, number one, you're getting for a big disappointment because it's never going to have satisfied, number one. Number two, you're going to wake up in hell. It doesn't have to be. God's done the work singular, and he's done it through his sealed person. That's why there is only one way. It isn't a matter of any religion. It isn't a matter of what Fellowship Bible Church believes. It's a matter of what the Bible says. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the way, one way, the truth and the life. No man can come unto the Father. That's easy English. No one can come unto the Father except through me, through Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin. The debt's been paid. It's not of works. Man thinks he needs to work. We don't work for it. We need to recognize that we're unable. There's an inability. It's like owing a million dollars on your credit card. I could not pay that. I couldn't pay it. But if somebody paid the debt for me, it's canceled. Jesus Christ paid the debt. He satisfied the righteousness of God. And that's why we need to see that we must come to believe. If you're here the, today the, without having trusted in Christ, what you need to see is there's more to life than just the physical. The real you is inside, and the real need of your heart is to know God. And the only way you can have peace with God, according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, is through Jesus Christ. And that's because he sent his son to die on the cross so that we could have the gift of eternal life. You need to believe on him. Isaiah, I'm going to read just two passages to you. You can stay right where you are. But in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, a big book in the Old Testament, in the 55th chapter, in the first verse, he says, to the, he says this. This is the Old Testament. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Now listen. You who have no money... Buy. How can I buy if I have no money? And eat. Come, buy wine, milk. How can I do that? Without money and without cost. We can't buy it. Christ bought it for us. Christ paid the price. God offers it. You notice in our text where we are, isn't that what he said? Or is that Pastor Dan making it up? He says very clearly, verse 26, that he, that they came for him for the wrong reason to be filled, right? And, and a little earlier he says, what? That the Son of Man shall give you, verse 27. Give you, verse 29. The work of God is that you believe. It's not works. Concept today is works. He put it to you this way in Matthew 11. Last verse I'll turn to. But in Matthew chapter 11, many of you are familiar with it. He said this. 28 to 30. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Now listen, I will give you rest. Isn't that wonderful? Verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Why? For I am gentle and humble in heart. Now listen. You shall find rest. Three very important words. For your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Jesus Christ desires to satisfy the soul. That which is the real you. And only he can do it. And you can't buy it. You cannot be religious enough. You could attend Fellowship Bible Church all your life and it won't make a difference. You see, because it's not about this church. It's about understanding truth that God and Jesus Christ came to do miracles. Why? To point to his Messiahship, not to just satisfy a physical need. That's what they were looking at. And what is the work of God? The work of God is to believe on him whom he had sent. So what is the way to seek Jesus? If you're here this morning and you're seeking Jesus because you just need something by way of relief physically, come in for the wrong reasons. The seeker movement today, honestly, and I tried to be as gracious as I could be, it's for the wrong reasons. Oh, they're seeking with the right motivation in the sense of trying to reach the lost. They're not trying to do it God's way. Then I shouldn't be comfortable. They need to be told that they're sinners because unless they are, they won't see that they need to repent. They won't see that they need to come to Christ. And we need to see that the right way to seek Jesus is as the Messiah of God, the one who brings eternal life. And if you're here this morning, believer, you say, I've trusted in Christ. I sought him for the right reasons. Praise the Lord. Are you seeking Christ right now on a regular basis just to meet and answer your prayers in this particular area? Are you seeking him every day because of who he is and you want to grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God so that you can have a better relationship with him and walk in this world pleasing him, not any movement, not any church, but pleasing him according to his standards, according to his way. It's a challenge to us. As we come to this communion service, we're reminded that Jesus Christ paid it all. Remember the cost. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you that the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his love, because he loved these people, he didn't want to tell them just to make them comfortable things that they would want to hear, but he cut right to the chase and told them they were seeking him for the wrong reasons because he was concerned for their eternal souls. And he made very clear that the work of God is to believe on him whom he sent, that is the Father sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that if there be any here today that have not trusted in Christ, they would come and trust in him, that they might have the gift of eternal life. And that, Father, every believer who has come would see our need to keep seeking the Lord Jesus Christ, not for what we can get out of him. That we shouldn't come to church, that we shouldn't serve others, that we shouldn't do things for what we can get. But, Father, so that we can grow in our knowledge of God, so that we can understand what truth is and better serve you and love you. Father, as we come to this communion service now, we pray that it be a special time and that you'd bless. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.